time for us to come back, back from the future. This week, we're going to continue to discuss a topic that's still impacting everyone, COVID-19, and even a new breach at Nintendo. We'll also talk about a friend and positive influence in the information security industry who happens to work at FireEye. Ian and I will discuss our upcoming certifications and why we chose them. Ian will tell us about some books he's even been reading. Honestly, I don't know where the guy finds the time. We discuss the future of Splunk, the tyranny of default, and lastly, Ian has five tips, one for each business day. This is going to be an amazing show and we're glad you joined. Hey, thank you for joining us on the Back from the Future podcast. Today, it'll be Ian and myself talking about a variety of topics, ranging from COVID-19 related topics to a breach at Nintendo. We'll also talk about a friend and a positive influence that works at FireEye. You'll find out his name later. Ian and I will discuss some upcoming certifications that we plan on taking and why we chose them and a ton of other topics this week. We think it's going to be really exciting and we're excited to talk about it. So Ian, the first topic we have today is the COVID-19 tracing app. And it was compromised. The source code was uploaded to an online repository for public scrutiny as part of a project by the government of the Netherlands. And it was quickly discovered on the internet. It was also found that it had real user data, which consisted of 200 full names, emails, and hash passwords. The long and short of these types of stories is don't give away valuable data, especially medical data, which is some of the most lucrative data on the dark web right now. Just find ways to protect your data and don't put an open server on the internet with any sort of user data. Wait, DJ, so you're telling me that... Okay, so I understand the need for COVID and that they want to keep track of these records for tracing purposes to help slow the curve and to stop the spread. But this code of the application, the actual source code, was left on a open server, an online repository. Was it a GitHub or some other code repository? I'm not sure if it was a code repository, but it was something that the government of the Netherlands had set up. So multiple companies were set to put their source code for review by the government or by the body that would be overseeing the next app that the government of the Netherlands would take and release for public consumption. So these software developers that were competing for this contract had to put their source code up for review. And this company that was found to be compromised had their source code up there, but they had put it up in such haste that they sort of accidentally included 200 full names, emails, and hashed passwords. I think we're seeing more and more of this. So in a rush to do the right thing, which is stop this virus, lots of the rules and the checkpoints that we've put in place as good security practitioners have kind of fallen by the wayside. I know that timeliness is important, but it needs to be safe at the same time. We can't let the principles of good security fall by the wayside. There has to be that right balance. This source code exposure, this breach, um, this is a 
a loss of IP. So now that the bad actors have it, they could, in fact, use this source code of their own, change a couple things, repackage it, sell it as their own. It's a shame that this great work is being ripped off like this, or it could be ripped off like this, and that the right controls were not in place. And the other thing is the 200 medical records that are exposed as to this nature. It's So what's the answer? What is the solution for these 200 people? It's like, are they going to be rewarded financially for this breach? Or have those rules gone away? Because this breach, it seems to be becoming far too commonplace where the speed gets in the way of good, solid security. And I hope that this does not become the norm. In fact... I was reading something kind of similar the other day, and this is about RFID. Some of the new thinking right now around the COVID is they want to have this biometric passport. And the fastest way to do that would be either to A, get a wristband with the RFID tag embedded in it, or an RFID tag embedded in your skin. The problem with the RFID tags in the skin was that they aren't encrypted, there's no long-term study of the health precautions, and you are subjected to a man-in-the-middle attack. Someone could easily set up a RFID receiver and be capturing all of your pertinent medical records. And as we know, lots of nation-states will use these medical records as blackmail if you have some kind of medical condition that you don't want the world to see because it is your health privacy. Those same medical records can be used to turn against you. I do wish that these governors or these governments had the right controls. Partnerships with academia and the governors were just trying to follow good security practice. So I, I want to speak to biotech real quick. I've always had a special hate in my heart for biotech. The way I think of it is this. If you had a chip implanted under your skin in 1985, let's say we had some sort of RFID technology in that era. If you still had that chip under your skin right now, and it was still effective, say it didn't have to be replaced due to technology lifespan of that chip, say it could go for three or four decades like a pacemaker, if you still had that under your skin, you would have all of the same vulnerabilities that it contained from three decades ago. So anything you put under your skin right now contains the vulnerabilities in the way we philosophize about biotech that may be extremely vulnerable 10 or 20 years from now. Just like we're finding out about some of these machines that are pumping insulin into people and different sort of pacemakers that have become vulnerable because they were made 10 years ago or five years ago and they were meant to hook up to specialized machinery or the protocol has been cracked because a lot of these have to be wireless since they're in your body. You're literally walking around with a vulnerability and if that company goes under or there's some zero day floating around, you're a literal walking vulnerability without the ability to perform an update. I have always been against these different forms of biotech. Technology becomes outdated at such a rate that this sort of stuff was never meant to live with you forever. 
Yeah, that's scary. That's super scary. One thing um, as well to add on to that point is you, you're walking around with something that's in your body and it doesn't have the right controls in place. And there's no long-term studies of the health effects of having something in your body. In fact, um, some of these early adopters who embed these RFID tags in their body, they are setting off alarms left and right. Like I said before, they are exposed to rogue antennas or rogue receivers that can act as man in the middles, and they can capture your data without you ever knowing it. The long-term ethical consequences or the ethical thoughts haven't really been planned out yet. I am curious as to what the acceptance is now because there's still social prejudice against people who augment themselves with pieces of tech. There's a large group of people who still don't want any piece of tech inside of them, in their body. They think that their phones are invasive enough. The last thing they want is one more thing that can track you, that the government can track you. Or the other thing is because these things aren't encrypted, think about this. Your FID could be cloned and someone else could be using your data, like they could actually clone you for medical purposes or ID purposes. Someone could just take all of your data, upload it into the RFID receiver, then download it into a new RFID tag, and then you've got impersonation. Precisely. We have this issue even to this day with passports that contain RFID chips. And there's a lot of companies that they either sell a bag, you put your passport in, that way you don't broadcast who you are as you walk around the airport. And then there's also Scotty Vest who make special areas of their clothing just for passports for this exact reason. That was something that was implemented. Maybe it passed the test of the era in which it was created. Yeah. But it no longer passes these rigorous standards that we need it to pass today. But due to the lack of the government's speed in updating this, we all now walk around literally broadcasting our identity when we carry these passports around. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is. I feel strongly that it's not quite ready for prime time. And if it was, you would see this these types of stuff in a much broader use. I know Bill Gates has been making the rounds this week with the COVID and he's advocating for this biometric passport. And I know some of the airlines are now on board since their business has been decimated. They would they would love for you to have this biometric passport. And one of the companies that is uh, trying to get involved with this is Clear. Have you ever used Clear before, DJ? As in all clear ID? Yeah, yeah, where you just scan your fingerprints at the airport and you can skip all of the lines you can you can get in the front of pre-check and then you're from airport to gate in less than five minutes because you've already been vetted. I've never used it, but I have a lot of friends that do international travel from the time where I worked overseas and they absolutely swear by the system. Oh, it's a game changer. I love it. I love it. I, I can... Um, for a busy airport like Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson, it is five minutes from the time you walk in to when you're at your airport gate. The none of that Homeland Security TSA, take off your shoes, take off your belt. It's 
It's you walk through, they um, vet you, you have them go to your gate, and you've got time to actually relax. You don't have to go through that long snaking line back and forth all around. It's it's so much more simple. And so Clear wants to get in the space, and they're saying like, hey, we've we've already got the infrastructure in place at lots of these major airports. Now all we just need to like tie in is your COVID status. Are you COVID free? Do you have the antibodies? Or are you still carrying COVID? And they are trying hard to get in the space. And I can kind of go both ways. You know, I like to travel on airplanes, but I don't want to be on an airplane with a bunch of people who aren't tested. I don't want to take that chance. And this would be a great feature. But again, Clear is not free. Clear, you got to pay for. It's it's a private company. And I'm not sure how the how the airlines are going to deal with the actual screening process of people who have had it or don't have it. That's a, yeah, that's a tough question to solve. That, that's a tough problem. So this is a long-term solution for a short-lived, relatively short-lived pandemic. It feels like it's a long time while we're living through it, but in actuality, this may only be a year total before we find a vaccine, eradicate it, and move on to the next pandemic-like issue. The solution they're looking at implementing has much further-reaching impact in this space. Because if we're talking, once again, biotechnology that's going to be under your skin, that's going to be years, if not decades, in terms of how long that should stay with you. It's not like you can go get a new passport. You can... What happens when you change your identity? When you go through the legal process, you now have to go get this RFID chip removed, literally removed from your body and re-implanted unless it has the faculty to be updated. Okay, well, that's the thing because lots of the existing RFID, it's read-only and it's used a lot for inventory tracking, for asset tracking, for identification that says, hey, this is DJ Moore, this is Ian Trimble. We have vetted who he is. I've not seen where it's actually read-write yet, but like you said, yeah, for now it's read-only. So again, that's one more IT problem to solve. Yeah, this is definitely something that I'm personally, as you can tell, not quite comfortable with. You don't want to be a, a, a cyborg? Negative. Uh, you don't want to be a Borg? <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you have to comply. Come on. Well, okay, okay. Well, then that's the question. So basically... If there is no actually good solution, what are you going to do? Is half of society going to stay at home because they do not want to do this? Or option B, of course, is to just get a uh, wristband with the RFID. But the same problems exist where you can um, clone them, you can intercept them, steal one. Make one yourself if you have the right hardware, which you can get off eBay. It's a tough issue. I think there have to be like some other type of multi-factor, you know, in addition to you being you, there has to be one more thing that can stop some of those other problems that I just mentioned. And I don't know what they are yet. On an ending note, the same reason I would not get a biotech RFID tag inserted under my skin is the same reason I've never gotten a tattoo. It's something that I don't feel like I would like or look back on fondly 10 years from now or 20 years from now or longer. It's a very large decision. 
It is a life choice. You make good wins and you make bad wins. And I'm not anti-tattoo. I love great artwork and people have some very awesome tattoos. But yeah, you're right. I'm the same. I can never decide on a tattoo that was suitable for me or something that I would look back at one day and say like, yeah, this actually means something to me. This wasn't just a uh, drunk decision. This was something that had real meaning to me. So I'm, I'm in the same camp. I'm Tattoo-free since 93, bruh. Now, speaking of things you can carry through airports, Nintendo had a little data breach of a measly 160,000 usernames and passwords. The reason it was so small was due to the accounts that were compromised were the older what they call NNID accounts. Those are accounts that you would initiate on one of their handheld consoles, excluding the Switch line. Okay, yeah, so I think um, it was so small was because Nintendo's online service sucks. (laughs) It's not user-friendly. It's not built out like Microsoft and Sony's. For some reason, Nintendo has not gained traction you know, in the online multiplayer space. And maybe that's why it was so small, because it, was, it wasn't frictionless. It wasn't, and one of the other portions to this, considering why so few people sign up, is, I believe, when you own a Nintendo product, especially the smaller handheld consoles that they've made, which is where the majority of these accounts originate a lot of those consoles you could play multiple multiple games on them and never have an account in the first place unless you wanted to attempt to play online with them we have one of those smaller devices and i did make our original nintendo account on that device but then i went to nintendo.com turned on two-factor authentication and i believe that converted it into one of the newer Nintendo ID accounts, which did not suffer whatever this flaw was that allowed them to be compromised. But it turns out that if you were caught up in this, they will email you about it. But the nickname, date of birth, country, and email addresses were accessed through the database in the breach. Some accounts have experienced fraudulent purchases as well. You uh, reference PayPal. What about the PayPal? What was that the cause of the illegal purchases? Because these NNID accounts also use PayPal as their payment method. With Nintendo, you can either set a credit card or PayPal. And it was more of an automated purchase thing. It was very easy if you're logged in to make a purchase. Before this happened, there was very little in the way of confirmation when making a purchase. They wanted to remove as much friction as possible. I'm sure after this, they're going to introduce quite a bit more friction to that process. The first issue is they want you to be buying stuff in their eShop. Totally get that. They did not put on the human check that Apple does and that Android does where they actually prompt you and say, hey, would you like to put your password back in every time you make a purchase or would you like a a second factor? before the purchase is approved, Nintendo wasn't about that life, and they just wanted you to buy stuff. Correct. They made it very simple because when you're purchasing things, 
I don't know if you have a Switch or, or if anyone out there has a Switch, you'll know what I mean. When you go to purchase an item from the eShop on the Switch, it's very simple. It's very easy. There's not a lot of confirmation and you definitely do not have to attempt to put your password in while making the purchase. Where did the breach occur? Was it on the payment server where the actual names of these purchasers were? Was that where this happened? Was that where the compromise came from on the actual payment server? Nintendo has been very tight-lipped about this entire issue. They merely confirmed that it happened, and a lot of people that were notified that their accounts were compromised have been coming forth on Twitter, Reddit, and different social media outlets to say, this happened to me, it can happen to you, and you may want to check your account. Now, Nintendo confirmed that it was only people that signed up through NNID on their smaller, older consoles Anyone that signed up on the Switch will not suffer from this sort of issue. And as every time an identity loss of confidentiality happens, they recommend everyone signs up for two-factor authentication because that would have stopped a lot of this. The problem arises from what I've read. When you log into a console, the console assumes you are who you say you are. There's no secondary checks, at least at the time of this writing. So if I borrowed my friend's Switch and it had already had its payment information stored and I wanted to go to their eShop and buy some games or do some in-app purchases, I could just go buck wild and just buy stuff. Right. Wow. Now, there's one caveat to this. A lot of people were told by Nintendo support, if you try to get your money back, if you try to charge back through your credit card company, Nintendo was going to close these users' accounts because it looked like they were essentially trying to double dip or it would reflect negatively on Nintendo. Nintendo is telling people, reach out to them directly. They'll handle it. And in many accounts, they've handled this quickly. They've returned the funds to the account, told the users how to secure their account to stop this from happening in the future, as two-factor will help. Yeah. But those that threatened to go to their credit card companies were threatened right back by Nintendo that we will close your account if you try to do a chargeback. That's consumer unfriendly. And I don't think that'll fly in all jurisdictions especially the United States. As consumers, we've got lots of rights that might not exist in some of these other countries. That's kind of lame on Nintendo. If they did not have the right controls in place and then they want to shut you down for you not being, you know, you not being charged for something you didn't pay for, like you've got every right to call your credit card company and do a charge back if it was something that you didn't purchase. Now, the... Uh, Double dipping, that's integrity right there. I don't respect people who would do that at all. That's just fraud. That's fraud. I think this is a big lesson for Nintendo. And now it's pretty trivial to put on that simple user feedback that says, hey, before you press purchase, are you sure you want to buy this? Or 
enter in a password for the account or something that the user should know. You know, like I said, you've got all these factors. Frictionless is good for the for the bottom line, but it's biting them in the butt as we see right now. I would like to follow this story and see which accounts Nintendo is choosing to close. That I, I don't agree with that. I agree with you. It will not look favorable for Nintendo if this happens to turn into a class action lawsuit. Speaking of Nintendo, have you heard anything about a new Switch being released? There were these smaller Switches that got released about three to four months ago with the non-removable controllers. They're about $100 cheaper than a full-size Switch. The screen's also a little smaller, but they play all the same games. Technically, the insides are very equivocal. And they still use the same technology. I believe it's Tegra from NVIDIA. I've got the Tegra in my Shield TV from NVIDIA. And it's a great system on a chip. I've been able to get lots of ports from PC games and some PlayStation 3 era games. And they look great. I wish that they would port some of these Switch games over to the American shield because in japan the the nvidia switch actually has a partnership with nintendo and like you said they use the tegra x1 chipset so lots of these switch games are actually put out on the shield as well oh wow that's remarkable you know nintendo has always been about quality going back to the 80s and 90s where they would release first party games and they had a partnership with a lot of different game manufacturers at the time that was the Nintendo Seal of Quality. Do you remember those days? I do remember the Nintendo Seal of Quality, and I found out a whole lot more about it in this book I read a couple years ago. It was about Sega and Nintendo and the race between those two companies. What was that book called? It was called Sega Does What Nintendo Don't. <laughs> I do remember those those commercials. Oh, Console Wars. Yeah, it was called Console Wars, and it explained what the Nintendo seal of approval was, and it was a big money-making operation where they would actually charge the game manufacturers to put that seal on there. It was their licensing scheme where the games had to meet these standards that kept changing and to get that seal was expensive and if you didn't have that seal your game was not allowed to be sold it was this licensing scheme that nintendo pioneered and learned from the atari 2600's failures they said hey they are putting out a whole lot of stuff that is not so good for the Atari brand. A whole bunch of dumpsterware and and shovelware to actually get games that people will want to buy. The games have to be vetted by Nintendo, which meant Nintendo ultimately had final say on what could and could not be in your games. And that's what that was all about. It, a was money, and then B, Nintendo of America or Japan had final approval of what could or could not be in your game, much to the game developer's chagrin. There were lots of cases in the Console Wars book where games were changed, 
just at the whim of some corporate person from Nintendo at the time. It's interesting you raise that because it makes me think Microsoft App Store versus Apple's App Store in terms of quality and them going and sorting through making sure that the apps that are in there are quality. Because if you go look at the Microsoft App Store in Windows right now, there's a lot of bad things to be said about the quality of the apps that are in there. There's a lot of good in there, but there is just an ocean of bad, small, terrible apps that are just released on there for free or a dollar. And Microsoft doesn't go do much vetting outside of perhaps scanning for malicious code, even if they go that far, where when you look over at Apple and Amazon and Android, or I should say the Google Play Store, they do a lot more vetting. I would say the Google Play Store maybe has a lot of lesser quality apps compared to Amazon or Apple. But this is very reminiscent of what you're talking about, except Apple seems to achieve that quality not by putting a seal on every app, but by being absolutely zealous about their rules that they run their app store by. If your app is not at a certain quality, you just won't get in. It's very similar, except you don't have a, a seal and you don't have to pay for a licensing fee. Let's be honest. The Microsoft App Store is a student programming project gallery. Lots of first-time coders are in the Microsoft App Store. And it's sad because it could be so much more. And it's kind of fallen by the wayside. In fact, the Apple App Store, it's got it's got good apps, but it's got a lack of apps. Where Microsoft has the opposite. You said it's flooded with apps, but at least 90% are mediocre and worse, clones of real apps. Exactly. And that makes it hard to trust. Because in the end, I think what Apple realizes, and even Amazon to a fair extent, last time I logged into their store, is if you don't get quality or you have to dig more than several pages to find what you want, how are you going to trust the app you get from that store? I don't know. I don't think anyone actually uses the Microsoft store. To be honest, I think most consumers don't even know what it is. They uh, buy their computer and they might purchase some apps, but for the most part, they'll be getting their games from Steam or Epic Game Store, or they'll be using the web for, for most of their apps. It's a tough argument these days to get someone to actually go to your app store on a desktop PC or a laptop PC. When you've got apps in the Chrome browser or extensions that can act as app. It's a tough sell these days to actually get someone to go to an app store and get something that they can probably get for free on the web. And I will say that macOS does have that problem. It is something that they've fought for a while now because you can get a lot of apps in the Macintosh, sorry, Mac app store that you can also get on the web. And I'm talking about free apps. If you go look on the web, it'll be the newer version because these developers do not take the time to keep the Mac OS store as up to date as they would their own website and repository. Because basically that's all these stores are, are repositories just like Linux. This all stems from the Linux philosophy of having that repo running one update command, having everything update, 
except it works in Linux because you have a small community of people that really love that community. They are literally updating this stuff in those repos for free. That's how much they love it. Where when you come over to the Mac App Store and the Microsoft App Store, you're looking at that same repo philosophy, which is wonderful because package management repos, I believe in those 100% instead of having to go get it yourself. You run one command and you get everything updated. But it never took off and never got momentum because I believe these companies never put the man hours, the advertising, and everything else it would require to get all these developers to release their own control. Because you are giving control to the platform owners when you put it in their repository. They're scanning it. They're doing a lot of different things before they're even approving it. You have to play by their rules. The only real reason it took off on phones is because you really didn't have outside sources, especially in Apple. The App Store was the only way you could get apps unless you wanted to run a web app. And as you know, at the time, web apps just weren't there yet. We didn't have HTML5 when those phones came out, even though it was Jobs' dream to run web apps. Yeah. We had to do an app store. We had to write native code. And then everyone has either tried to copy Linux or the app store in their own way through Microsoft stores and things like that. If they don't back it like they believe in it, no one else is going to believe in it. And that's what happened, in my opinion, to the Microsoft Store. You know, someone who I do believe in, DJ? Would his name happen to be Mr. Freeman? His name would be Lance Freeman. And I understand you had the pleasure of getting to interview him. Can you tell us about that? I did. This next segment is something that we like to call Noteworthy Nerds. We may still be working on that name. When Ian and I first started discussing doing this podcast, one of the things on which we both agreed was that we wanted to find a way to give back to the community that brought us so far in this industry to the point we can talk about it on a weekly basis. This week, the noteworthy nerd is Lance Freeman, as Ian mentioned. We both worked with Lance at Blue Cross for quite a while, at least on Ian's term, and we both consider him a good friend. Lance was born and raised down the road in a small suburb of New Orleans called Metairie. You may have heard of it. While growing up, his days were spent dabbling in technology. He played everything from the original Nintendo Entertainment System, which we happened to discuss earlier, to his grandfather's Commodore 64. It may tell you a little bit about our age, because I'm sure we have some similar memories, but back in the bad old days, his family bought a computer and he replaced the old 28K modem with one of those newfangled 56K modems. Websites loaded in mere minutes. Ian, you, you recall some of <laughs> I that. I remember the um, the uh, old school modem days thing. My first modem was 14.4 and then doubled the speed with 28. And then really was cooking with fire when I got a 56K modem. And I was in Hog 7. I thought that was crazy fast. But again, I wasn't browsing the web. This is the BBS days and the prodigy days and maybe some free 20 hours of aol so after all those battle days with 56k modems and things like that lance went on to attend lsu after graduating from archbishop rommel high school and received a degree in information systems and decision sciences to this day he considers his formal education to be instrumental in his understanding of how businesses 
use technology to achieve their goals. Nowadays, he finds himself working for a small company called FireEye as a managed defense consultant. But his earlier years at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana afforded him a great opportunity to attend SANS courses. Those SANS courses went a long way in helping him learn to deal with host-based forensics, which he considers prepared him for the role he holds today. He also managed to achieve his CISSP, which is considered essential by some in the industry for any card-carrying information security professional. At FireEye, he's driven to make sure his customers' networks are secure and protected from those with malicious intent. He has an absolute passion for information security, protecting data, and for the people he works to protect day in and day out. But it doesn't come without its challenges. A battle he faces from time to time is internal politics, just like the rest of us. And he's still learning to influence conversations and lead others to the best solution. One of his most used skills is his ability to communicate, which is perfect for his type of role. He also leans a lot on his ability to manage time, which only comes with experience. But just like the rest of us, he continues to learn. He's currently working on increasing his leadership abilities. So leaders, if you're looking, he wants to get into management one day. In terms of achievements in his career, he looks back fondly at the legacy he created in all his different roles. From building a mobile device management program at Blue Cross, where there was none, to even co-founding a small IT consulting business right here in Baton Rouge, which ran quite successfully for over three years. The last one alone is a grand achievement for a lot of folks. But he didn't stop then, and he doesn't stop now. To be perfectly honest with you all, I don't think there's much of a sign of him slowing down. I did ask Lance for one extra detail while I was talking with him. I asked him to tell me about a time that may not have been his proudest moment, but from which he learned a valuable life lesson. We all have some of those, unless your name is Ian <laughs> or Mr. Uh. T. He recounted a recent time where he was working with a customer who shall remain nameless that he had just met when he started at FireEye. The customer asked him a question, which was pretty technical, and due to his experience in another similar platform, he gave a quick answer straight off the cuff. The only problem was he was wrong. The customer then sent a sharply written email to him and his boss, writing in great detail just how wrong he was. Lance told me after that incident, he never again recited an answer of which he was not completely and totally sure. Sometimes we just have to admit that we don't know the answer, but we know where to find it. At the end of the day, he considers honesty to be the best policy. So that's Lance Freeman in a nutshell. He's an outstanding information security professional, a leader with an entrepreneurial spirit, an awesome father to his kids, and an inspiration for many of us who know him. Sorry, ladies, he is taken, but Ian, on the other hand, is single. I think, yeah, what you said about Lance, it's all true. He's a great guy. He was my actual buddy uh, when I started at Blue Cross. He was the one who I partnered with, and he kind of showed me the ropes. He was my blue buddy, and the first week we went to lunch, and the first question he asked me was very serious. He was saying, are you a friend of the show, Howard Stern? And I said, yeah. And I said, Baba Booey. So, that's how we started our friendship, and uh, we uh, 
continue to talk to this day. Lance is doing some great work at FireEye. And in fact, this past week, we had the pleasure of having Lance speak at Isaka. He did a, a lunch and learn called Coming in Hot. And it was all about some of the advanced persistent threats that he sees in his day-to-day. We had a large crowd and we got great feedback from the presentation. Hope to get Lance back on the stage with Isaka. He's, he's a fountain of knowledge and I encourage him to post that on LinkedIn. And if you can't find it on LinkedIn, let us know and we will post it on the website once we get the website up right now it's a work in progress but uh, it was great to host lance's past week i got great feedback and wish him the the best in his career and one day i might even hire him we'll see once we get the capacity and the know-how we would like to get him in and actually interview him and ask him a lot of questions to go over some of the stuff we talked about today and perhaps we can do a segment with him about Yacht Rock. He's a, he's an evangelizer of Yacht Rock, and he got me on the bandwagon of Yacht Rock. In fact, I was playing some Yacht Rock music today. Great day. It was sunny. Had on my captain's hat. A nice cold drink. Yacht Rock. I mean, who could ask for anything more? And we've um, also been to a couple of Yacht Rock concerts here locally. A band that we follow called Wear Yacht. So if you are on the Google or on the Facebooks, check out Where Yacht. They always put on a great show. They always deliver. So Ian, speaking of career development, what certification are you thinking about doing next? Right now, it is Amazon. I don't have any Amazon certifications yet, but what I'm studying right now is the AWS Cloud Practitioner. And I'm taking this partly because of some work that I'm doing. The client wants us to be versed in AWS and just because they use AWS as their cloud platform. Most of my experience has been with Microsoft. So it's very cool to be seeing how Amazon does this because AWS, they are still the King Kong, the 800 pound gorilla in this space and the cert that i'm going to be taking this week it's the aws cloud practitioner and this is intended for people who want to have the knowledge and skills necessary to understand the entire aws cloud it's not that it's not that technical this is more a high level of to how the AWS ecosystem works. You talk about what they call their servers, how they build their servers, how they secure their servers, how they resell their servers. The more I learn, the more I'm intrigued and I'm impressed at what Amazon has built up over the past decades. It's really impressive. They were basically the blueprint for this new cloud ecosystem. Rackspace tried to throw their head into it. They couldn't get anywhere. Oracle tried the same thing. They've got some Oracle cloud, but it's nowhere near where AWS is in this. And then Microsoft has Azure, and Azure is gaining traction because of the partnership, of course, with Office 365, and because Microsoft was giving it away just to get their foot in the door. They have got like the wedge. But this is not about Microsoft. This is about 
AWS, which is Amazon Web Services. I'm impressed with the um, training that I have. The test costs $100. You can either take it at a testing center post-COVID and pre-COVID, but they also offer it online through Pearson View. And there's great training that I'm going to talk about later in my tip of the week. But if you do want a, a good foundation of AWS, I would certainly study the cloud practitioner. And once you actually pass that test, then you'll be able to take some of the more specialized tests like the AWS architect or the AWS security practitioner. I'm very impressed with um, Amazon in this space. I mean, they do everything. They've got security baked in. They are on all platforms. They let you buy unused instances at a cheap cost. They're like scale out infrastructure and they're scale in. It's seamless. It works on automation baked in. I mean, I'm, I'm like really impressed. And if I was a CIO or the owner of a business, I would really consider doing everything in AWS. They've got redundancy baked in with the, with their different regions, their locations. They they make their computers compatible with the laws of the country. They are USA compliant. They are California privacy compliant. They are GDPR compliant. They do some pretty good work. And it's been, like I said, they've got a decade plus into this so they are still the gold standard in the cloud space but don't sleep on microsoft because they are gaining traction they both basically have unlimited resources in this space and i think it's good it's good healthy competition because they keep each other innovating so you know watch this space and i hope next week i can tell you about what the test was like and give you a couple of clues but not answers because there is a uh, you gotta practice ethics so yeah that's that's what I'm that's what I'm looking at right now. Do you happen to have CISSP? No. That's the one I do not have. I have been sleeping on CISSP. I've actually bought the test, but I'm not taking the test yet. It's been delayed at least two or three times. I just got to get off my butt and just actively focus on it, but I don't have it yet. But I think you are looking into it. Yeah, it's actually going to be the next test that I start studying for here soon. I recently completed some Splunk Fundamentals training, which was actually quite involved, more involved than I thought it would be. But I've got those out of the way. I've been Looking at CISSP for a number of years, as you mentioned, you have as well. It's something that I could never drag myself into studying for because it's such a wide, broad test. Looking at it looks like you're trying to eat an elephant. And I know you have to do it one piece at a time and read it half a chapter at a time or whatnot, but it has always looked daunting to me. But all the people that have it swear by it when they say that it helped their career or helped them achieve the next step in their career, like Lance, that's one of the things that he was most proud of outside of his degree was achieving his CISSP. And he did it back at a time before it was dynamic, 100 to 150 questions. I believe back then it was 250 in something like five or six hours. His was the real deal. This new one covers the same material but it's adaptive, so you may only be in there for a handful of hours. You may only have 100 questions, but as long as the adaptive test 
thinks that you are in a passing zone, it can cut off 50 questions early, which is actually quite nice. Now, the reason I'm taking it is because it is something that has always kind of scared me away. And these days I'm trying to do a lot of things that do kind of scare me from the point of anxiety. So I look forward now to studying for this and for taking it. And it's a personal policy that anything I take, I pass first try. Every exam I have taken, I've passed on the first sitting because I make sure to prepare and study adequately before going up there. I don't schedule my test before I start studying. I know some people do and they hold to that deadline, but I'm the kind of person that starts studying and about three quarters of the way through, then I'll set my exam date when I know I'm confidently ready. I do plenty of practice tests to also make sure I'm ready. So when are you going to take it? Probably in about six months. All right. Once you pass it, what do you want to do with it? Hang it on my wall. <laughs> let everyone worship <laughs> it. I think that's an awesome, uh, awesome goal. And I certainly think you should do it. I think you should definitely uh, take it because it's like, why not? You know, it's it's a rite of passage in um, the information security space. I know lots of people who have uh, taken it, and I don't know anyone who it's not helped open doors. So I would certainly use it as your as a stepping stone into an even bigger job, or maybe you know be with the same company, but you're entrusted with with more more responsibility because the CSSP it's all about speaking the language of the business, not necessarily the actual practitioner. But what would the business do in these settings? So I think it's a great search. The ISC squared, it's a great group. And so I would certainly encourage it. And one of the books that I would recommend is the Cybex book. Or um, if you don't look at the Cybex books, there's always the Sean Harrison book. And that's probably a thousand pages. And that's the tomb. There's also a lot of good resources that I found through the Baton Rouge Library, through the Linda, I think they now call it LinkedIn yeah. Learning. I forget who actually does the video learning, but it's one of the three authors that wrote the official book for ISC Squared. Ah, well then there you go. You get it straight from the horse's mouth. I think that's cool. I do know that you talked about Splunk before, how you took the actual Fundamentals 1 training and the Fundamentals 2 training. What did you take away from both Parts 1 and Part 2? I took away from both of those parts the SPL. SPL is key to not only configuring dashboards and making reports and setting alerts, it's fundamental to how people use Splunk. And I now see how incredibly important it is. But I also see a lot of how it resembles other languages. It's very much a scripting-based language. Some of the commands you can find in Bash, for instance. Now, for someone who doesn't know what the SPL is, can you explain that to them? The SPL is the Splunk procedural language, I want to say. And it is basically a scripting style language that allows you to manipulate the indexed data that resides in Splunk repositories to extract the information you need. Yeah, the way I said, and I agree with you, is like the SPL is basically 
how you get the data that you need. Since Splunk is indexing all of your logs, you know, it's a, it's a SIM, the SPL is how you extract that data for the information that you need to help you get your job done. The closest similarity I see to it is almost like writing a, a SQL statement where you select information, you choose what you want to actually search, you then choose where you want to search it, and then you've got certain keywords or syntax or terminology that helps you get your data to help you get your job done. And with, with the SPL, the one thing I've learned is the more specific, the better data you can return. The more broad wild search that you have, the more data you get back and the more noise you might get back and it just takes longer to get back. So kind of think of the SPL as Google dork, where if you know how to actually search the search engine, you're spending a lot less time browsing links and a, and a lot more time getting the data. I asked you about Splunk basically because um, we talked a bit and I've been thinking about it. The question I had was, will Splunk be relevant in three years? And I posed that question because a lot of my career was in security operations. And I worked with AWS and I worked with Microsoft Azure and both of those platforms are getting into the SIM space with Amazon and Microsoft Azure logging is enabled by default. And both platforms have centralized logging for the infrastructure that exists in each ecosystem. And my question is, will Splunk be relevant in three years? And if you're feeding all of your data to a SIM, you know, one is controlled by Microsoft, one's controlled by Amazon, do you really need a third-party SIM or a SIM that's in the middle? What do you think, DJ? That's a really enlightened question. I think that that goes really deep, and a lot of people in our audience probably have a pretty well-formed opinion if they've thought about this. I believe that it will be hard to overcome the price of free when you compare Splunk versus Sentinel versus what lives in AWS and the tyranny of the default option if you're already there. Yeah, and the actual tyranny of the default was something that you pointed me to with This Week in Security with Leo Laporte and Steve Gibson, you mentioned that to me, the tyranny of default, and it made me you know, think about that in more depth, and this is nothing new. It's basically, it's um, restated that says, hey, if you give someone something and it's baked in, most people are going to use that, and the most obvious examples to most users or the most people in our audience would be the web browser that comes with your smartphone or with your computer. With your Android phone, Chrome's gonna be your default browser. With Apple, iOS, and the PC, it's Safari. And these browsers are good enough. And that's, again, the tyranny of the default. If something is good enough, it's really hard to convince someone to switch. And it goes 
back to the argument of Splunk. It all comes full circle. So if Splunk is to survive, and don't get me wrong, Splunk's a great sim. It's fast, it's wonderful, it gets the job done. But if you've got these two big powerhouses, Amazon and Microsoft, giving you basically a sim for free that'll ingest their own logs for free, why would you switch to a third party? My thinking is that after maybe next year, it's going to be part of the AWS package that you choose, or it'll be baked into one of the Microsoft Office licensing deals that you choose. When you're in the Microsoft space, you get a choice between E1, E3, E5, E7, right? So if Microsoft is giving you a SIM, if Amazon's giving you a SIM, Splunk needs to be looking out, you know, on both sides. They're in the middle with their pistols drawn. It's like they're being encroached by two hungry parties. It's I said, I give them three years, or I think Splunk would be ripe for an acquisition. And who that is, I'm not really sure yet. My guess would be, if I'm Splunk, I would probably want to acquire a single sign-on provider like Okta, or be acquired by one of the other two. Because long-term, I just don't quite see Splunk surviving. And it's no fault of Splunk. Splunk makes great tech. They make a great product. I use it. I evangelize it. But free is free at the end of the day. I think that they do or could stand to profit from this because they stand in the middle. If you have an organization that is in both AWS, their own LAN, and Azure, then if they can integrate well with both of these and pull all three environments into one space and do it well, they might have a chance at surviving if they're not acquired by Jeff Bezos. But that integration, they're going to have to work with these two companies to do that integration correctly, because if they have to build that integration on their own, the public APIs could change at a whim. These companies, because they have competing seams or sims, they can make it incredibly hard for Splunk to survive in the middle, trying to pull that in from both sources just to further knock them out of the industry. Yeah, if AWS or Microsoft change their APIs, you know, which they have every right to do, Splunk could be caught. And in the middle, Splunk could now be unsupported. Splunk would have to do some back-end type work to get their logging working. And this could be the same thing with any company like Okta or, you know, Rapid7. Any other vendor would be like, hey, hey, why are we going to lose money to Splunk if we can do the same thing? If I'm working logs, shouldn't we go into the business ourselves doing this? So Splunk just doing this, you know, Sim is their main business. They don't do some of the other stuff. They're not in the identity providers. That they aren't in identity and access management. They're not like an Okta. So they're they're not like a, a Rapid Seven. So being a sole thing, they excel at that. But they're being attacked at all sides. So you've got to either innovate or be acquired or take someone over. That's my thought. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm I like to follow Splunk and and see where this whole field's going. So maybe we can revisit this in 3 years and see if my predictions come true. I have a feeling we'll be here in 3 years. Yeah, we shall see. 
So, Ian, when I count to five, does it remind you of anything? Yeah. (laughs) It does. It does. So, I've got five tips of the week, and I wanted to start with training. Basically, right now, and it's still open, if you go to Udemy or Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y, they are offering a free month of courses because of COVID-19. And my tip is take all the normal courses, but you can also take advantage of their nano degree packages right now. And their nano degree, think of it as you want to get a job in this IT field. You're going to have courses tailored specifically to that field. Let's say you want to do big data or you want to do SIM or you want to do, uh, what's that Microsoft business logic program? They've got that too. But basically, if you want to specialize in certain tech or a certain field, these nano degrees will get your foot in the door. And in fact, Udacity has partnerships with lots of the big players out there where it says, hey, if you've got this nano degree, hey, we'll get you an interview. Take advantage of that right now for the month of April, and it'll end some sometime in May, but they're still taking sign-ups. So once again, it's Udemy. How would you compare a nano degree to, say, a A-plus or a Security-plus certification? Interesting question. I would say the certs you're kind of specializing in one thing hardware for the a plus and then basic cybersecurity or the essentials for the sec plus with the nano degree these are actual classes and assignments and you have a portfolio that you can present to your employer or future employer at the end of this nano degree that actually proves you have this knowledge. It's not just take a test and pass it. it. This is basically, I've done the work and I've got the skill set. Here's my portfolio to prove it. So that's how I would compare the two. Number two is, you had mentioned this before, and I'm going to harp on it, your local public library. Right now, because of COVID, normally they would require you to show up in person and bring an id card or a bill to prove that you are you are well nowadays since they're closed you can sign up for your card online and you don't actually need the actual physical card all you need is your library card number and once you have that number you've got access to tons of resources and some of the ones that i'm going to call out today is the O'Reilly Library, which includes access to all the O'Reilly books and videos. So if you don't like to read books, they've got videos that you can watch if you're that type of learner. They've also got magazines, all of the latest magazines. There's different apps that'll work cross-platform on the Mac, on the PC, on your iPhone, on your Android phone. So if you're a magazine reader, have at it. One that I like a lot is the free Treehouse subscription. Treehouse is an online coding school, and it's also been around for probably seems about a decade now. They've got lots of coding camps baked in. And if you want to do Python, they've got Python. If you want to do C Sharp, they've got C Sharp. If you want to do web, they've got Node.js. Basically, they have any type of programming language 
that you might want to dabble in or actually focus on. And how they have their program developed is they've got different tracks that you want to focus on. So if you want to be this front-end web developer, they've got a track for that. If you want to code for iPhones, they've got a track for that. If you want to do Android, same thing. If you want to do cross-platform, they've got tracks for that. So Treehouse, great free resource, great partnership with the public library. So definitely take advantage of that if you want to get some quality IT training. Now we should mention real quickly that some of these options may vary depending on your local library or the area you're in. It may vary slightly, but I do know that since a lot of these different programs you're mentioning do pair with libraries, they'll often pair with libraries across the nation. Yes, and a tip that I have is you can be a member of more than one library. So in fact, in case you don't have one feature of one, go to a different library, you know, outside of your uh, county, your city. And I would say the like more the uh, merrier or the more resources you have at your disposal. But yeah, that is an important note. Like, yeah, uh, each one has different partnerships with different programs. I am lucky enough to be in a program that has great resources and I use them often. The other thing, of course, you know, is they've got audiobooks, they've got movies, you've got Libby. That's a great app for books that you can read on your phone or if you have a Kindle, you can send your books to the Kindle. They've also got the audiobook option as well in case you want to read while you're doing other things. So, so that's number two. Number three is an app called Fiverr. Fiverr's been around for a long time as well, and I've used them for various projects, but it's a great website you go to if you want different types of artwork or projects commission. What um, we used them for was some of the artwork on this podcast, and you get to compare from thousands of artists with what you're looking for. For example, I chose to look for podcast artwork. I just typed in that as the category and I got thousands of people all doing the same thing. And I was able to sort by price, sort by rating, sort by repeat customer, sort by turnaround time. And as the name suggest the lowest price of a service is five dollars and with that you will often get multiple revisions so you're actually working with the artist to get your concept your idea fleshed out and you've got that back and forth process and once you actually agree to your project that's when the artist gets paid and that's when you get what you paid for. So it's a win-win in both situations. Check out Fiverr. It's F-I-V-E-R-R dot com. Really great product. I've used them for years. And each product that I mention, I would not even give it a tip if I didn't use it. Number four is Basecamp. And I know we mentioned Basecamp very briefly last week. But as we've been working on this project, we've been using Basecamp as the project management platform. It's free for personal use, and they let you have up to three projects for free. 
it's a really cool platform and it's something that I've I can't really compare it to any other project platforms I've used Jira I've used Microsoft Project I use Teams but Basecamp is the project management system that I keep going back to mainly because it's everywhere it's like I said it's cross-platform it's Android it's iOS it's Mac it's PC it's web really great thing it's easy to use you don't have to be a rocket scientist to use this program Basecamp it's from the 37 signals folks and one more shout out for them is they actually wrote a book about working remotely it's called remote and there's a great TED talk that you can find about this book and it was basically the founders of this company coming up with different solutions that they had to problems with a disparate workforce they don't really have an office they got people working all over the USA different time zones different jobs different responsibilities and this book was basically a book about lessons learned and how they were able to be successful when you have a fully remote workforce so Basecamp project management it's how we're getting this podcast done it keeps us in check keeps us accountable can't recommend them highly enough and then number five the final one the doozy it's called lowendbox.com and that is the technology we are using to power the podcast lowendbox is a fantastic resource for purchasing or leasing server hardware and you often don't know where to go if you got a project and you don't want to do Azure and you don't want to do Amazon EC2 and you just want to have full control over your entire platform low box is great because all they do is find deals on renting virtual private servers and these servers can go from five bucks a month to hundreds of bucks a month but that is their one thing is they find deals and post them on this site lowendbox.com i'm not a sponsor but you know if if i was i would recommend them in fact i i use them to buy the hosting a server for these podcasts got a great server got a great deal one year lots of cores lots of space and it's basically my box that I can do anything I want with you know I'm not beholden to Amazon I'm not beholden to Microsoft Azure the server is our server and we can repurpose it in any way so great website great deals they got deals and specials going on all the time so if you are looking for just a like hobby box if um, you want to do proof of concepts you can find a cheap server at lowinbox.com. So those are the five tips of the week. Do you happen to know the difference between something you would find on Lowenbox compared to a droplet over on DigitalOcean for, say, $5, $10? Droplets are about um, about 9 bucks a month for the cheap one, and they are very small kind of like plug-and-play use cases. And that's how they've kind of repurposed their business model. I use Droplets in the past. I think it's a great company, great brand, and it's super simple. It's like type in a name, email, it's frictionless, and it's pretty much good to go. You're 95% there. You just add a couple of things. But if you're more of the DIY kind of person, if you want to have full control of everything, then a VPS 
might be what you want to do. And there's um, still a part of me that wants to dabble and learn. I still go the VPS route. But if I want something quick and dirty, don't even want to think about it, droplet, that's a very great way to go as well. Okay. Well, thank you for all of the different platforms you've told us about this week. I think that gives everyone a lot of great resources either to stay in contact with others and learn and use those different techniques in the cloud that they learn. I agree, DJ. I agree. Like I said before, I use them all. I've learned on all of them. I do recommend them. I got, I'll have some more tips next week. 